following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. In a study from 1999, it states that in the decade prior, on average, 125 females of all ages were murdered each year in Australia, with the greatest risk of homicide victimization for females being between the ages of 21 and 23. Overwhelmingly, it is men who kill women. Male offenders were responsible for killing approximately 94% of adult female victims. However, the likelihood of a woman being killed by a male stranger is very slight. Each year in Australia, fewer than 14 women are killed by a man that they do not know. It is now estimated that on average, one woman is killed every week in Australia. While those numbers have improved, many are still pushing the government for more to be done. On January 10th, 1977, Two friends were brutally murdered in their home at 147 Easy Street in Collingwood, Victoria, in Australia. The 16-month-old son of one of the women was spared and left alone to cry in his cot for three days before neighbors finally entered the home to discover the gruesome scene. Despite many leads and a thorough police investigation, the case went cold, and for over 40 years, their murders have gone unsolved. Most recently, a $1 million reward was offered to help renew interest in the case, as well as podcast episodes, books, and a two-part Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories episode. This is the story of Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett, also known as the Easy Street Murders. This is one of those cases that has become so sensationalized and the mystery surrounding it has become larger than life so it was hard to find details about the women and who they were as people, especially since the murders took place so long ago. What I do know is that the, quote, two Sues, as they were referred to, were longtime friends, having met in high school, and the two had traveled to Greece together for a time. They were both considered friendly, happy, and seemed to be enjoying their lives. Susan was also a music lover and enjoyed crafts. It was in Greece that Suzanne became pregnant and gave birth to a son, Gregory, who was 16 months old at the time. They had moved into the small cottage at 147 Easy Street just a few months prior to their attack in October of 1976. The home itself is referred to as a cottage in every document I found about this case, and that's because the home was a former worker's cottage, as the area of Collingwood is considered an inner-city suburb of Melbourne, and is, quote, notable for its historical buildings, with many 19th-century dwellings, shops, and factories still in use. From its early days, large commercial buildings often coexisted with small dwellings occupied by working-class families, and the mixture of industry and community continues to the present time, end quote. Two episodes ago, I covered the case of Hannah Clark, who was also from Australia, and I spoke a bit about the country, so definitely check out that episode, 
But Brisbane, where Hannah was from, is located in Queensland on the northeast coast, while Melbourne is located 1,700 kilometers away or 1,050 miles to the south in the state of Victoria. So just for comparison purposes, that would be the equivalent of traveling from New York and making it about halfway through Texas and almost to Mexico. Or for my Canadians, from Toronto to Charlottetown, PEI. I think some people view Australia as a small island when in actuality it is a very large landmass. So I just wanted to give that comparison. Melbourne is the second most populated city in Australia and is the capital and most populated city in Victoria with 5,159,211 people as of 2020. Melbourne is also the most densely populated city in Australia and as such, housing prices have skyrocketed and I'll touch on that again shortly. Melbourne is also well known for its sports, theater, literature, and arts. Obviously, there is more to this vibrant city, so please, if you've ever been to or live in Melbourne, let me know and share a bit more about the city on my Instagram, at femicide underscore podcast. The cottage was a small two-bedroom, one-bathroom home that was narrow but long, and I have an updated floor plan that I'll post on Instagram if you're curious about it. There was also a sewing room that is talked about in which Gregory's cot was in, and it was used as his room. But in the more recent floor plan, it doesn't have that space, as it has undergone renovations by this point. To paint you a picture, if you entered from the front porch, immediately you'd be met with a long hallway and two bedrooms to the right. At the end of the hallway, it opens up to the living room, and you'd pass through that to access the dining room, and then through that to enter the kitchen. The bathroom is beside the kitchen on the far back left of the home. And while I don't have a floor plan from 1970 and some variations may exist, overall the home is too small to have really structurally changed the layout all that much. So from the front, your sight line would end at the back wall of the living room. And from the back door, you'd enter the kitchen and look at the front living room wall. But you wouldn't have sight lines throughout the home, which is important to the story. Just on a quick side note, because I find history and society as a whole so fascinating, and I've been researching this home in particular to get the layout and understand what the home looked like at the time of the murders. But this home shows a purchase price of $8,000 in 1975. The homeowner, Peter Demiris, owned it at the time of the murders. So I'm not sure if it was built in 1975 or just sold then, but according to a real estate website, it was sold again in 1976 for $19,500 and again in 2011 for $571,000. I do know that the owner stated he sold it in 1983 after being unable to sell it for years due to the murders, but that amount isn't disclosed and the sale isn't shown on the website that I'm referring to. Quote, It was one of those things in those days. It wasn't heard of to have people killed that way. It was difficult to sell because of what had transpired. It was fresh in people's minds. It had that stigma to it. And obviously, we sold it at a discounted figure. End quote. 
It then sold again after renovations in 2017 for $1,095,000 and is currently being valued at between $1 to $1.24 million. These homes again were built for blue-collar workers, and at the time Suzanne and Susan lived there, it was an affordable area. Susan was not working during that time and stayed home to care for her son. I'm not sure if she had family support or if she was on welfare or assistance, but Susan worked as a teacher and they both lived modestly. So this home was not at all lavish or a target for crime in any way. The home is semi-detached, so there is a neighbor connected beside them, which makes the killer quite ballsy, in my opinion, to attack in the evening when any neighbor in the quiet suburb could have easily heard. It also makes it quite infuriating to know that they got away with it, essentially. The neighborhood was also quite safe and friendly, where people looked out for each other. Quote, there was a milk bar on the corner, and Suzanne would zip over with Gregory on her hip, end quote. Susan's brother, Martin, had joined them on the evening of January 10th to help the women set up some speakers, and he left around 9 p.m. The two women then apparently settled in for the night to watch a program called The Sullivans. This would be the last time anyone saw the women alive. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart. And I hope through these stories, we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is 100% a one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. So to help support me and my efforts, I have started a Patreon account. And if you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts received and memberships each month to various charities that help support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of February 2022 is Women Abuse Council of Toronto. Quote, Women Act works collaboratively to eradicate violence against women through community mobilization, coordination, research, policy, and education, end quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. Three days later, on January 13th, neighbors saw the women's dog, a German Shepherd puppy, roaming around in the neighborhood, so they took the dog home and left a note on the front door of the Sioux's home to alert them and to let them know where to pick up the dog. But no one came, and both Suzanne and Susan had not been seen in days. And so finally, the neighbors decided to go around to the back door and check on the women. This is when they opened the back door and heard Suzanne's son, Gregory, whimpering from his cot. As they ventured in, they could see Susan, obviously deceased, near the front door at the end of the hallway. A neighbor quickly rescued Gregory from the horrific scene and took him to their home to call police. When police arrived, they got a better look at the scene and were able to piece together the tragic events. Susan 
had 55 stab wounds on her body and had put up a fight. It appeared she tried to get to the front door after the initial attack, but was stabbed further in her back and legs before collapsing in the hallway. Suzanne was found on her bedroom floor with 27 stab wounds, and she had been raped post-mortem. Their killer then attempted to wash up in the bathroom and did not seem to rush out following the murders, but did eventually exit through the back door. What I don't know was if the women had been in their bedrooms at the time of the attack or if they had run to that area. The details aren't clear, but likely that's because it's still an open investigation and many details would be held back for if and when they have a viable suspect. As I mentioned before, things like this just didn't happen in Collingwood or Melbourne at the time, and people were shocked and horrified. The community was also in a state of fear because the killer was still at large, and so police went to work quickly trying to solve the case. Police gathered evidence and DNA was found at the scene. Of course, DNA technology was in its infancy at this time, but they knew enough to collect it, which is great because that's not always the case in earlier crimes. Unfortunately though, a lack of investigators, resources, and leads meant that the case went unsolved. Gregory went to live with Suzanne's sister, and a year later, a $50,000 reward was offered, which was a lot for that time. In today's earnings, it would be approximately $294,000. The day before their bodies were found by the neighbors, Suzanne's new boyfriend and his friend, who happened to be Susan's sister's boyfriend, came by and left a note on the kitchen table at around 8.30 p.m. Remember, the hallway wasn't visible from their entry point, and the two men had just left. I'm not sure if the dog was already found by neighbors at this point because wouldn't they have then seen the front door note or if they just didn't attempt to go to the front door? I'm not really sure. And I guess Gregory was asleep at the time, but... I'm not sure if they like called out into the home, like, hey, is anyone here? They said that they assumed the woman had stepped out because the lights were on and that they'd be back soon. It's a bit strange to me, but also understandable. So yeah, I'm not really sure exactly what happened during that visit. But in total, the detectives on the case made a list of about 130 suspects, and eight have been tested against the DNA found at the scene. But sadly, the case remains unsolved to this day. Renewed interest in the case came in 2011, when a new lead detective named Ron Idols reopened the case quietly. And then again in 2017, when a $1 million reward was offered. But sadly, no new developments have been made, or at least haven't been released. One interesting theory that emerged was the link between this case and another case from July of 1975 of a murdered woman named Julie Garcia Soleil. I'm actually a little bit lost on this case, so please, please let me know if you know more or have more information. But reports state she went missing and is presumed dead, but then another article referred to her body being found in her apartment. But then another states that she had left her apartment and never returned. A blood-soaked towel and her underwear were found on the bathroom floor, apparently, 
and three men were there that night that claim she went to make a call at a payphone and then just never came back. But what's interesting is a suspect in that case lived next door to Suzanne and Susan. Now, again, I'm not sure if that's next door on the side that is attached to their home or on the other side or across the road. It's not clear, but it's very interesting. The article I found referencing the suspects in Julie's case and the official announcement her death was now ruled a murder after being considered suspicious is dated from April 2018, just the following year from the million dollar reward. So my theory, and again, this is just my theory, so take it with a grain of salt, but my initial thoughts when I first heard about this case were that the attack felt personal and that they likely knew their killer and that he had possibly an infatuation with Suzanne. He was also likely upset she had a new boyfriend and was located at a vantage point to see what was going on in the comings and goings of the house. I think he maybe wanted to rape Suzanne before she was murdered, but Susan interfered with his plan, and he was in a rage when he killed her, hence the excessive stab wounds. I thought from the article I read that the suspect I mentioned was already tested against the DNA or had been cleared in some other way, just based on the wording, but if he only really became like a real suspect in 2018 when Julie's case was ruled a murder, then we could potentially be sitting on an announcement in the near future. They would need to get a warrant for his DNA, investigate his alibi, collect evidence, and the DNA would need to be tested. And remember, we are also still in a pandemic, which halted or delayed many legal proceedings for the last two and a half years. Now, maybe I'm wrong and it's wishful thinking, But what are the odds he was present at or near two separate crimes where women were murdered? Again, many details have still not been released, and I have no idea if they are close to solving this case or are stuck on square one still. But I hope that one day the families of Suzanne Armstrong, Susan Bartlett, and Julie Garcia-Soleil live to see the justice for their loved ones. Many unsolved crimes are also being solved thanks to genetic genealogy, such as the story of Christine Jessup, which I covered in episode 5, and most notably, the Golden State Killer. So I have no doubt that one way or another, their killer will be discovered. I just hope it's not too late and he does get to stand justice for his crimes. Suzanne's son stated, quote, The worst thing is to not know who did it. There is nothing I can do, but it would be different if I knew. For one thing, it'd be something big I wouldn't have to think about every day. I miss her. I wish I could meet my mother again, even just once. End quote. Thank you for listening to the story of Suzanne Armstrong and Susan Bartlett. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story.